Let us turn now for our scripture reading to the book of Revelation and the chapter 6. The book of Revelation, or the revelation of Jesus Christ, as the first verse of this book tells us, that was given unto John and to the churches, and to every true church of Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation chapter 6. Let us hear God's word. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering, and to conquer. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse, And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. And see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Death, and hell followed with him. And the power power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth, to kill with sword, and with hunger, and with death, and with the beasts of the earth. Amen. We'll end the public reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant, and sacred word there, and we ask that the Lord may reveal these things to us and bless this gathering, sanctify our hearts through his word, and may the Lord work in our midst and in our lives, we pray. Let us draw near to Almighty God and bring our needful concerns, many things to him, but ultimately as we come, we come to worship, don't we? Prayer, really, is the breath of God in man. And as we do, we come and we we worship. As the Lord said, when you pray, pray to your Father in heaven, hallowed be his name. May the Lord be honored, hallowed, and glorified here. Let us pray. Well, dear friends, I ask you to please turn your prayerful attention there. In the book of Revelation, chapter 6, we arrive in our week-by-week study of God's Word in Revelation chapter 6. Last week, we considered the two chapters together, chapter 4 and chapter 5. Now, I know that seemed like quite a bit there. There is a tremendous scene there. It is the scene of the throne in heaven. That's essentially the scene that we see in chapter 4 and chapter 5. And it concludes, really, the end of the first cycle, remembering that the book of the Revelation is set before us in seven cycles. 
We believe that that is the correct interpretation of understanding the book of the Revelation. Seven, as you know, is a very common symbolic number in the book of the Revelation. It features so much. There are seven vials, seven bowls, seven seals, as we've seen, seven spirits, seven figuring and symbolizing complete or whole. And we have just concluded the first cycle. And of course, as we've said before, each of these cycles are synchronous, meaning that they happen at the same time. They are giving us scenes, as it were, from different angles. It's the same event, we could say, from the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ up until his final coming, until his second coming. These are the last days and things that will, as John tells us by the Spirit, as he's told by the Lord, through the angel who reveals these things to John, who is, by the way, on the island of Patmos, the time somewhere around 95, 98 AD, these cycles are synchronous, giving us things that take place in this world from different angles. It's the same terminus, if you like. It's the same end. And each one ends with a scene in heaven and God's people in heaven. And we certainly saw that in chapter 5, and we saw the four and twenty elders represented by the twelve elders of the twelve tribes of Israel. And of course, there weren't actual elders throughout all ages of the twelve tribes, but they were representative of all the saints in the Old Testament. Of course, spiritual Israel which Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 9. And then there are the 12 apostles who represent New Testament believers from the epoch of Christ coming into the world until his second coming. Both Old Testament, the 12 elders of Israel, and the 12 apostles, as we've seen in both in Revelation 7 and in Revelation 14. So, the four and twenty elders around the throne. And then, as we saw last week, there are the cherubim. And we recounted that in the close of Genesis chapter 3, it was the cherubim that barred Adam and Eve from the garden and the tree of life the day that they sinned. And uh, they were given a flaming sword or flaming fire. And they were barred from the Garden of Eden and from the Tree of Life. But we see around the throne the four beasts, which we are told in Ezekiel chapter 1 and Ezekiel chapter 10, that those four beasts are the cherubim. And we find them behind the saints who are gathered around the throne, as it were, shutting them in. And that's quite a striking feature, isn't it? Redemption In Jesus Christ, who is in the midst of that throne, they are now kept by those four living beasts, those four creatures around the throne of God. And nothing will ever separate God's people from Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans 8, what, who? He searches heaven, he searches earth, he searches the entire cosmos, and he says, who, what, shall ever separate us? from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ. And we see a plethora, a multitude of angels 
myriads of angels around the throne. 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands, says John in Revelation 5. So these things are being revealed by and by. The end of chapter 6, chapter 5, we should say, is the culmination of all things. And we see Christ is in heaven. That's where he is now. But one day, it's as good as done. It's a fait accompli. All of God's people shall be gathered at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And what we will see, the end of the second cycle, which we find in Revelation 8, we find the seventh seal, and there are seven seals. We're going to look at only four of them tonight. There are seven seals, and at the seventh seal, all of God's children are sealed. That's the last seal, and they're sealed in heaven. And they are pictured, as it were, as, again, the twelve tribes and the entire New Testament age sealed in heaven. Well, we'll get to that when we come to it. But this evening, with the Lord's help, what we want to consider are the first four seals. And here we are, as I said, we're entering into the second cycle, which, by the way, again, I must emphasize, is synchronous. Chapter 1 through to chapter 5 is the first cycle, and the picture is Christ amidst his churches, amidst the lampstands. Remember, Chapter 1, he that has eyes as a flame of fire, he that has feet as fine brass, is also, and he is the one who touches John and says, fear not. John, suffering persecution and was exiled on the island of Patmos for the sake of the gospel, he was amidst the lampstand and John saw him, the glorified, risen Lord Jesus Christ, the same figure that we see in Daniel chapter 9 and chapter 10, the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember what we saw in chapter 5? We saw the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb, in the midst of the throne. And he alone was worthy to unloose the seals. Now, Amidst the vast multitude of angels is Christ and the cherubim. And they stand behind the saints in glory. And that's, again, as I say, the culmination of all things, keeping them in. But now the seals, chapter 6, verse 1, beginning the first of the second cycle, amidst the throne of the Father is Christ, the risen Lamb. Notice and he opens the seals. As again, he alone is worthy to unloose the seals. Who is he? He is the lamb that has prevailed, but he is also the lion of the tribe of Judah. He has prevailed. That is, in this world, he came and he lived, and he earned a righteousness for his people. And the cross was no defeat. It was a glorious victory, wasn't it? It is finished, was his cry, to tell us die. It was a cry 
of victory. And the scriptures say he must now reign until he makes all of his enemies his footstool. As I've emphasized in the last few weeks, Psalm 110, verse 1 to 3, are the most alluded to verses in all of the New Testament. He shall reign. To which of the angels did he ever say, sit down at my right hand? Well, that's where he is now. And he unloosed the seals in chapter 6 here. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, I heard, as it were, a noise of thunder. One of the four beasts saying, come and see. Now we know, we thought last week, didn't we, in chapter 4, verse 6 to the verse 8, that these four beasts are the cherubim. It's very clear from those passages. And uh, they are likened to, they have a face like a lion, and second beast like a calf, and third beast, the face of a man. And we saw the interpretation of this, is very clear in the book of Ezekiel. It's the same imagery, the same four beasts, and they have the same faces there in Ezekiel 10, and also Ezekiel chapter 1. The cherubim are here announcing what the Lamb has opened. You notice here, first of all, the Lamb opens the seal. Now you can imagine, what are the seals? The seal is the book, as we read chapter 4, there's a book, and there's seals in the book. And only one is worthy to unloose these seals, and that is the Lamb. Remember one of the elders cried out and said, One has prevailed, and it is the Lamb. And here we see the Lamb opening the seals. The seals are the things that are to come to pass. God's will, God's word. And Christ, as it were, opens the seal. Now I remember as a young boy, uh, my grandfather, he was rather old-fashioned. When he used to send a letter, I'm not kidding you, he used to send a letter with a wax seal on it, and it had his initial on it. And uh, he didn't trust anybody. He was an intelligence officer uh, fighting against Rommel in North Africa. And I suppose that was just ingrained in him. He didn't trust anybody, so he always sealed his letter. So he, if he ever wrote to me, he sealed a letter. But that's the idea here. It's sealed. And we could say it has an initial on it. Only Christ is worthy to unloose this. Only he effectively can bring it to pass. Whatever these seals are, whatever these things are, remember Christ is on the throne because he is God and he is ruling and everything is working after the counsel of his own will. Ephesians 1 verse 11. All things work after the counsel of his own will. And that is what is happening. The Lamb is on the throne and he is loosing the seals. And by the way, each one of the four beasts here uh, introduce, as it were, each one of these seals. And they are events that take place. There are scenes. Each one of these are a scene and a, and a theme that happens throughout the millennia until Christ comes. So these four horses, we have four horses here. We have a a white horse, then a red horse, then a black horse, 
and then a pale horse. And these all mean things that are very significant. And I trust with the Lord's help and with Scripture interpreting Scripture, not the preacher uh, putting on a meaning on the text what he wants, but rather what Scripture teaches. May the Lord teach us many things here tonight. So from Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 20, we are told that these four beasts, Ezekiel says, and I knew that they were the cherubims. I don't want to go back over and make more work than we did last week. But if you weren't here, you can study for yourself Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. And you'll see that these are the same creatures mentioned with the same descriptions, the same features, the same faces, uh, the eagle, uh, the, 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 the lion's face, and uh, the calf's face. They are, without a shadow of a doubt, the cherubim who are introducing these things. But it is the, the lamb that is upon the throne that is introducing each one, uh, that, that, that is opening the seal, that is making it happen, as it were. He alone. Now, what you'll notice, that there are seven seals, as I said, between chapter 6 and chapter 8. And all we're dealing with tonight are the first four seals. And they are pictured under the imagery of four horses. But the last three seals, and I just give this to you to whet your appetite uh, for the coming weeks, The fifth seal you'll find in chapter 6, verse 9 to 11, that has to do with the martyrs who are having rest. They cry, how long, O Lord? Chapter 6, verse 9 to 11. You notice that's the fifth seal. And then there's the sixth seal, chapter 6, verse 12. And what is that, that seal? Great signs in the earth and heaven. Cataclysmic events, we could even say some of them. And then the seventh seal, as I said, it is the prayers of the saints, but also the multitude of God's people sealed. They are praying, but they sealed. And it's as good as done. They sealed in heaven. And John sees at the same time a great multitude before the throne of God, which no man can number. And that's repeated again in chapter 14. So, this evening, we want to consider these four horses in this second cycle, but only here we have four seals. Remember, seven seals, seven, picturing complete, and it's complete again over time, what takes place over time. I hope I'm not uh, losing you in all of this detail. It is complex in a way, but if we get into the gist of the book, I'm sure it will become obvious. So verse 2, as we're told, verse 1, I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, and one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him. And he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now, I agree with many of the eminent commentators that, first of all, introduced to us here is the only one that conquers and that is going forth to conquer, and that is Christ. White, 
is a picture of pureness, purity, wholesomeness, and we're told this one has a crown and has a bow, and he is going forth conquering and to conquer. Now let me show you from Scripture how we arrive at this conclusion. If you turn with me to Revelation 14 and the verse 4, you notice the same symbol is used again to describe the Son of Man, and we know, of course, who the Son of Man is. That is Jesus Christ, who is also the Son of God. But remember, he had to become the Son of Man in order to be our Savior. Revelation 14, 14, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. So we know Christ is crowned. But what at the end, as we climax to the end of the book of the Revelation? Well, if you turn with me to Revelation 19 and the verse 11. Crown, by the way, is a picture of victory. You know, our Savior was crowned with thorns, but now he's crowned with glory. And crowns represent not only victory, but victories. And you see that here in Revelation 19, 11. And I saw heaven opened. And behold, notice again, same imagery, a white horse. And it's this, let me suggest to you, this white horse that we see in Revelation 6, 2. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Now notice, he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And you notice there in the verse 12 that on his head is not one crown now, but much later, many crowns. In, all, in other words, he is conquering, he's gone forth to conquer, and he's conquering, he's conquering hearts, he's subduing men's sins, and he is, of course, he's ultimately defeated Satan at the cross, but one day, Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. And so he is pictured there as having many crowns, this one again upon a white horse. So the imagery hasn't changed. It's the same Lord who is called the Word. Of course, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is Christ, who is called faithful and true, and who cannot lie. So I believe that the imagery clearly points us to the fact that this cannot be the devil, But this is Christ. And you notice, he is the first one out. In other words, 
these other horses that go out are all subservient to his great cause. Whatever they may be, as we'll see tonight, they all serve his purposes. They might seem very negative, but I suppose we could say the whole theme of the book of the Revelation is Christ's victory. Christ is victorious. That's the theme of the whole book. There's a war. And Christ is going to win. There's a battle. He will crush Satan's head. As was announced to Satan in Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman, the lion of the tribe of Judah, shall prevail. He shall conquer. In fact, Paul tells us, doesn't he, in Romans 8.36. He says, as it is written, and even God's people suffer We are killed all the day long and accounted for sheep for the slaughter. But then he says, nay, never mind. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Christ is the conqueror. And he has made us kings and priests forever. And we are not on the losing side. Satan is. So we see that there. Paul says, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come. He says nothing. No height, no depth. No other creature shall ever be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. The one who died for us, lives for us, and he is working all things, as Paul says in Romans 8, together for good. Even death, as we will see tonight, through these horses, for our good. To them that are the called according to his purpose. And what is his purpose? That we should be conformed to his image. And that finally, one day, we shall be with him in glory and before our Father's throne. Now, whenever you think of the word conqueror or or overcomer, remember what he said to all the churches, The seven churches, he that overcometh, I will give a crown. And what will we do? We will cast our crowns before him one day. And now we see him wearing a crown. And he has a crown. Hebrews 2, we're told, verse 9, it says there, but we see Jesus, says the Apostle Paul, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. Crowned with glory, he says. Now he's crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man that is every one of his people. That's what he's done. He tasted death for us, but he lives. He says, I am he that liveth, was dead, but am alive forevermore. Well, friends, he has the keys of death and hell. And the kingdom of heaven. He has the keys of David, as he will also tell us in Revelation 22. And by him, we are victorious. Ultimately, the victory is through Christ. And he has many diadems, many crowns upon his head. Revelation 19, verse 12 there, as we saw. And on his thigh is that name, Lord of Lords, King of Kings. So... Again, the whole theme of this book 
is the victory of Christ. And what you'll notice is these four other horses, and by the way, the theme is it's not so much the horse here, but he that is, you notice, on the horse. And I saw, behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him. And he went forth conquering and to conquer. Not so much the horse, but he that is on the horse. And that's where our focus and our gaze should be this evening, upon Christ. Now, another reason we can believe that this is Christ, well, the Old Testament is really found so much here in the book of the Revelation. If you turn with me to the Psalm 45, you notice a, a, a striking parallel here. And and Psalm 45, we know, is a messianic psalm, and it's speaking of Christ. This is not speaking here of Solomon, but the one in whom Solomon was to look to, who David is speaking about. Psalm 45, verse 1, My heart is inditing a good matter. I speak of the things which I made touching the king. And that's the king to come. Same as Psalm 72. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Thou art fairer than the children of men. This can't be a man, simple man, can it? Grace has poured into thy lips. Therefore God hath blessed thee forever. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty. With thy glory and thy majesty. And in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. At thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. Now think of it. We're told here in Revelation 6-2 that this one upon the horse has a bow. And here we're told he has arrows. And of course, we know what happened to our hearts. When the gospel was preached, we were pricked in the heart by the Holy Spirit. We were converted. God opened up our heart just as he opened up Lydia's. And he has conquered our hearts and he has led captivity captive and he has taken our hearts captive, hasn't he? He has set the prisoner free, but not free to serve himself, but to serve Christ. We were once slaves to sin. We once belonged to the dominion of Satan. But now Christ has set us free, brought us into the kingdom of his love. But they will be his enemies. But he will subdue them. Nothing, not even the gates of hell, shall prevail against his kingdom, my friends. It shall endure. He said, I I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail. See, looking back and just reflecting there on Psalm 45, the book of the Revelation is immersed with Old Testament symbolism, isn't it? The second seal we move to now, here is the red horse. And again, let me say, it is subservient to the purposes of Christ. Now, it's very clear, it doesn't take much to interpret this. I think the very verses themselves, verses 3 and 4, really interpret for us the meaning of the red horse. We're told... And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast. So another one of the cherubim opened, 
Say, come and see. And there went out another horse that was red. And power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth. And they that should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. Now many say that this, of course, this is clear that this is death. And there is, red is always a figure, isn't it, of blood and bloodshed. Some say Satan. Remember how Job lost all of his family. That's true. Well, we, we can't say with, this is a, a person, as it were, but certainly red here represents tribulation, that they should kill one another. What, what is happening? Well, although Christ is conquering, and throughout the ages, have there not been Christians? And has the church not prevailed down through the millennia? But there's always been death. The world has always known wars. The world has always had times of trouble, great times of trouble. There's, what we must learn is this, from this horse here and this death, and it says it's, that's, there's no peace from the earth. You notice, and there went out another horse that was red and power that was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth. In other words, there's never going to be a time of peace on this earth. My friends, it's never going to be a utopia. We must never imagine that. Some people imagine that. That there will be a time of peace. But remember what the Lord said, I have come to bring a sword in and of himself. And of course, the world will hate Christians and there will always be trouble in the world. Why? Because of sin. There'll always be martyrdom as well. There'll be not only natural death. Why is there death? Because sin. The wages of sin is death. But the church itself will face great persecution. And we can say that Throughout the world's history, it has been scourged with blood, hasn't it? Ever since Adam sinned, the animal had to be slain for a covering for Adam. And then there was his first son, Cain, who killed Abel. And there's always been death and bloodshed. Well, this is taking place because the world is a fallen world. And the world will try to also destroy the church. It's true, isn't it? But let me say, even this red horse, God will use for his victory and for his glory and for the good of the church. You think of the trouble that came to Judah when it was exiled to Babylon. You think of the trouble that came to Israel when God had to chasten that nation. You think of the times that God brought persecution to the church. What happened? It was to the good of his church. It purified the church. When the church in the New Testament was persecuted, what happened? The gospel spread. There were many martyrs. But they went to glory immediately. 
And though death continues, it is all subservient to Christ, who is the conqueror. The world, you think of it, if it were peaceful, friends, would we ever want to go to heaven? If there wasn't so much bloodshed, if there wasn't so much violence, and the wickedness, and I don't want to name some of the things that take place, but would we want to be here? I think we'd probably want this to be our home forever, wouldn't we? If it were all well in this world. There'd be no desire for Christ. There'd be no desire for heaven. And you notice later on that the in chapter 8, how the cries of the martyrs go up. How long, O Lord? See, all of this is working good, isn't it? In the church. Working good in your life, my life. When we are persecuted, what does it do? We draw nearer to God. We start to pray like we've never prayed before. And maybe you lose a loved one early in life. You're a Christian. If somebody young gets taken from your life, you realize how short life is. And I could be gone at any moment. Every day is a gift to me. I live in a sinful world, in a God-hating world, and my times are not in my hand. But when my time is up, my time is up, and God calls me home to heaven. There'll always be, what's the lesson of the second horse? There'll always be death in the world. There'll always be bloodshed. Wherever the gospel is preached, especially, persecution comes. But it's all working to Christ's glory and to his ultimate victory. Then I opened the second seal and heard the beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth. You see, power was given to him, just like God gave power to Satan, didn't he? To touch Job, to take away his children. Then the third seal, the third horse, a dark horse. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see, and I beheld Lo, a black horse. Now, the interpretation, again, is really given for us here. Nothing left, really, to the imagination, but it's, it's all here. What is this dark horse? What does this black horse represent? Poverty and riches. You see, a, one upon this dark horse with scales. But friends, what is this world? It's an unjust world. And it's a dark horse. Darkness, unlike God, it says, in him there is no darkness. In him is light. But in this world, what is there going to be? It's clear here, if you notice the verse 6, it's clear that it represents not only economic hardship, but oppression and wealth all at the same time. And it is at the same time. Notice, and I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, a measure of wheat for a penny and three measures of barley for a penny. Really, literally what's being said here, what you earned in a day, and that's what 
one earned in a day, a measure of wheat for a penny. Remember the parable of the penny and, and uh, the pound as well. There's a parable of the pounds and the parable of the what one earned in the vineyard. And three measures of barley for a penny. It's not much. What do you make out of three measures of barley? A loaf of bread. So in other words, it's all you get in a day. It means there's going to be poverty in this world. I think that's the simple meaning of this. There is going to be poverty in this world. You would buy a little, figuratively speaking, a loaf of bread, and he's saying there's always going to be this poverty. The world will never be again a utopia. There's People think that, you know, people have tried communism, spread the wealth, but it never works. People have tried socialism. People have tried, I mean, the EU tried been all kinds of man systems, but they always seem to be unfair. And you notice something else? And see that thou hurt not the oil and wine. Oil and wine always represent, in the scriptures, riches, things of opulence. In other words, there will always be the loaf a day, and there will always be the oil and the wine. See that these things continue throughout the age, throughout the epoch. And that's what you have. There's always going to be the rich and the poor. Remember what the Lord said? The poor will you have always. There will always be riches and poverty. Yes, it's good to work an honest day's wages. But you'll never settle the world's problems. Because some people are just frankly lazy. Some people want to... Just live off the system forever, and that's, that's wrong, isn't it? These socialist systems, they don't last forever. Capitalism's not an answer to every problem either, is it? Doesn't sort. Systems, the EU system, communism, man systems don't work. Why? Because there's sin, there's laziness, but there's also greed. There's great greed. So he's saying, look, don't expect here upon earth... A utopia, a perfect world. Man has his systems. Nothing wrong with hard work. Paul says to the Thessalonians, he says, He that work not, let him not eat. But there's also laziness, isn't there? And that's why the Lord has to say, Go to the ant, thou sluggard, and learn from him. The problem is man's heart, isn't it? It's at the heart of all of this. Why all this trouble? Man's heart. And when man has a great abundance, will he give? No. It's an unfair world. The problem is what? Is it the systems? No, it's the heart. It's the heart of man. That's the issue, isn't it? But in the, ch- the churches, it should be a different place. A church should be a place of help. But of course, you don't help those who won't try and help themselves. There's no help to them. We speak the truth to somebody. Don't we? It's the way we help each other. And if we're in the truth, we receive the truth. Church is different. 
And then we have the fourth horse. And uh, it's represented here by the pale horse, that, which is death, we're told. And when he had opened the fourth seal, verse 7, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was death. Well, we're told. We're going to have death throughout the ages. You know, these mad ideas that scientists have believe that they are coming up with drugs to, present, to prevent death is foolish. We can't keep ourselves alive forever. Death and hell followed with him. That's what follows death, doesn't it, to the unbelieving. And power was given unto them over the earth, a fourth part of the earth, to kill with the sword, with hunger and with death, and with the beasts of the earth. Now, you notice it says here, a quarter, a fourth part of the earth, death. What does this mean? Well, some people really, I think, get wrapped up and try to look for a time when a quarter of the earth is going to be destroyed. Well, the Bible really doesn't speak of that, but what he's saying is that there's, there are going to be times, but not when God destroys the whole earth like he did back in the days of Genesis 6. Remember when he flooded the entire earth and only eight people there will be times when portions of the earth will see death. I mean, think of it. Recently we had the pandemic, didn't we, of the virus. and Many people were killed then. And there will be times and seasons of such. What is he saying? There's always going to be death in this world. Something, because it's, it's all part, as we will see, as the bowls are poured out, as the judgments are poured out, as there are famines, pestilences, and earthquakes. These are warnings. But it will always be proportionalized by God. It will always be in proportion. That's what William Hendrickson says in his commentary, and I believe that's the right analysis. So does Mr. Ramsey. Death will come, but not at the same time. Of course, the scriptures tell us it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. And we're told that in Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. It's going to be the judgment. We're all going to face that. But here in measure. Now it's interesting. You can look up in Zechariah chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. The four horses are mentioned there. You want further reading of them? We read there, there's the red horse, the black horse, the white horses, and the grizzled and bay horses there in Zechariah 1, verses 1 to 3. And uh, there's further reading there. The, these represent trouble and victories. The world is going to be facing times of hardship, it'll always be until Christ comes. I think that's the central message that is being conveyed here. That's what we need to look at. What is the central message? Christ is victorious. 
It seems to me as you look at all of these horses, only one is victorious. Isn't it? Christ. There's death. There's economic hardship. There's persecution. There are all these things represented by the other three horses, but only one is victorious. In other words, Christ is victorious over all of these things. And all of these things serve his purposes. They are subservient. He is the one that goes first. And here's another thing. He is not responding to these things. Christ is not merely responding, but he is decreeing these things. He's opened the seal. Has he not conquered death? Does Paul not say, though we are poor, we're rich? Does he not say, though we suffer with him, we shall reign with him? Does Paul not say this, we are more than conquerors? What is this life? It's short. And this ought to be encouraging for us. Friends, this world is not our home. And no matter what happens to us, we should lift up our eyes to heaven and to Christ who came into this world and who lived for us and who died for us that we should never die. Remember, he said, whoever receiveth my word and keepeth them shall never see death. He meant death in the ultimate sense, that second death. Though we die, we shall be with him. What is this world? And this would be a great encouragement to the churches at this time. Many of them facing persecution. We've read of Antipas. We've read, haven't we, of Stephen, the first martyr. And how many martyrs have gone before us? And even in the Old Testament, Paul says we have a great cloud of witnesses. Some were sawn in half. Many of them lived in caves. But they all died in faith, says the Apostle Paul. And he says, you the same thing. Consider him who endured such contradiction from sinners, lest ye become weary and troubled in yourselves. We must fix our eyes upon this one who has a crown on his head. And we find in the book of the Revelation, chapter 19, who has in the end many crowns on his head, who has conquered death, And who Paul says we are more than conquerors through him. I want to take you to a passage as we close in Acts 14. With the Apostle Paul, they thought he had been stoned to death. Remember when he was at Lystra and Derby? And uh, then at Iconium in Antioch. They threw him out of the city there, Acts 14, 19, and they came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium who persuaded the people and having stoned Paul, threw him out of the city. Now notice, supposing he had been dead. And this man looked like there was no life in him left. 
Howbeit, as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up and came into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch, same places where he was stoned, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. Well, there you have it. There was a man who believed these things and lived them out. The one day he's, they think he's dead. And he gets up and he carries on preaching to the same cities where he was stoned, there at Lystra, and then hated at Iconium and Antioch and everywhere else. He carried on preaching. Why? Because he knew who was on the throne. And we've got to know that when we're in the greatest times of difficulty in our lives, whether it's in your family setting, whether it's at work, anywhere. What did the Lord Jesus say? I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. It's by knowing him and loving him that the world will hate you. But remember this, you are more than conquerors through Christ who loved you. And you are basically immortal until he calls you home. Let me say that again. You are immortal until he calls you home. And he will strengthen you. In John sixteen thirty one, the Lord said to his disciples, Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. He knew, you read those verses, his disciples would forsake him for a little while. Even deny him. But then they would be restored. Then he said, you know what? You're not going to have peace in this world. You will have tribulation. But what did he say? But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. We are more than conquerors through Christ. Nothing will separate us from Jesus Christ. In Joseph Hart's hymn, it's in Gatsby's hymn book, it's a lovely hymn. He says, brethren, those who come to bliss come through sore temptations. May we all, remembering this, pray for faith and patience. See the suffering church of Christ gathered from all quarters, 
all contained in that red list were not murdered, martyrs. The Holy Ghost will make the soul feel its sad condition for the sick and not for the whole. Need the good physician of that mighty multitude who of life were winners. This we safely may conclude. All were wretched sinners. All were loathsome in God's sight till the blood of Jesus washed their robes and made them white. Now they sing his praises and we too shall soon as we are more than conquerors in Christ. He will even conquer our own sin in our own hearts, will he not? He will trouble us and he will come and he will smite the heart and draw us back to himself. May the Lord encourage us, not a little, but very much from his word. Amen.